Best Book Bits podcast brings you Richard Koch, author and co-author of around 25 books dealing with business, ideas, and personal success. The 80-20 principle has a classic, sold over 1 million copies, and has been translated into 40 languages. And his latest book out, Unreasonable Success and How to Achieve It, Unlocking the Nine Secrets of People Who Change the World. Richard, thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much, and thank you for getting up so early in the morning to talk to me. Very no kind problem, any any time at all. Now, your life resume is long and extensive. Uh, we'll deep dive into some of the books soon. But for now, take us back to where it all started, at the famous Badlanian Library in Oxford. What were you studying and what were you doing there? Uh, the Bodleian Library, yes, in Oxford. I was studying history, but goodness knows why. The Bodleian Library is one of these uh, copyright libraries, which there are very few in the world, uh, but they have every book that's ever published. They have to, you have to give them a book. And so I used to go there and uh, spend idle hours when I was sort of, you know, a bit, little bit bored of my coursework, I would study something else. And one of my friends said, there's this book by Vilfredo Pareto, uh, who was a uh, professor at Lausanne University uh, in Switzerland. And he wrote a book about economics, The Course of Economics. Well, that sounds pretty boring. But the guy said, read the book. It's very interesting, particularly where he talks about uh, income distributions. So I, I ordered up my book from the stacks. They have this huge, huge underground library. Uh, and eventually, about 20 minutes later, actually pretty quickly, the book arrived. And I had a bit of a surprise because, Michael, it was in French. <laughs> and uh, my French was, it was reasonable, but it wasn't perfect. So I, I, I looked at it and I said, yes, it's probably quite interesting. I had to go back the following day with a dictionary <laughs> just to make sure I understood it correctly. Anyway. Well, Pareto was looking at the distribution of incomes and wealth in England in the 19th century. He was writing in 1896. And he uh, discovered something that really excited him, which was that there was a consistent relationship between the amount of money which people earned or owned and the percentage of the um, working population or the um, wealthy population anyone who had any assets, uh, that that accounted for. And he never used the phrase 80-20. That didn't come until the 1940s or the 1950s. Right? And still, I tried to find out who was the first person to use it. But, but what he did do was to construct an algebraic equation, which was an incredibly good fit. And it demonstrated that there was this consistent relationship between the proportion of wealth and the um, number of people or the proportion of people in the population who actually uh, had the wealth. And there's nothing very surprising about that to us now, but that was the first time that anyone had ever used a methodology like that of saying, well, there's this percent of wealth and there's this percent of people, and I'm going to compare the two. And um, the relationship was so strong that if you if you said, we might say today that 80% of the wealth was owned by 20% of the people. Well, then you could take 20% of the 20%, which would be 4%, and they would, they, they would own uh, a certain percentage, which absolutely referred to that. So uh, it, was, it was great from his point of view. And then he looked at the wealth distribution in other countries. He looked in Italy, Switzerland. He looked in Germany, France, um, and uh, lo and behold, he saw the same kind of relationship. 
Absolutely the same kind of relationship. And if you drew the graphs, you couldn't tell which country it was. And then you looked at what happened in, in previous centuries. And of course, you know the, know the story, the graph was exactly the same. So he discovered that there was this something in the world which meant that a very few things accounted for a, a majority of the um, output, or in this case, the, the wealth. And um, that has since been applied to things like asteroids, that you know, very few asteroids achieve most of the damage that asteroids create. And uh, it applies to volcano eruptions. It applies to accidents. 80% of accidents are caused roughly by 20% of people. It even applies to the clothes that we wear every day. That, you know, we probably wear something like 5% of our wardrobe, depending how big our wardrobe is. Uh, so it might be uh, 1% for certain women. And, the, the, uh, and we wear those clothes over and over and over again until they fall apart. Uh, it's just that there are some things which are our favorites. Um, and you can apply this to business. It's been discovered that 20% of all um, products or all customers account for at least 80% of the profits of those particular customers and products, um, and so on and so forth. There's, there's this sort of very strange relationship which nobody until recently has been able to un explain, which says that, there are some things which are very, very important and other things which are trivial. And what I did in my book, Michael, that the 20 principle was to try and extend this. I, I talked about it in business, but I tried to extend it to things like time. Is it possible that a great deal of your achievement happens in very, very small amounts of time? And uh, whenever I tried to measure that, that, that did seem to be the case. Uh, is it possible that a very large proportion of the value which we add at work is actually in a tiny, tiny proportion of our time? Because there are some things which we do which are incredibly valuable, like inventing a new product or maybe getting a big new customer for a business, or it could be um, writing code which no one had ever written before. It could be inventing something that nobody had, had ever done before, or it could be as simple as um, producing something which was so much simpler that it saved people's time. Anyway, um, there did seem to be this relationship also in time. And when you think about it, you know, we always say that we've, you know, we've got uh, no time. We're, we're, we're too busy, you know, and basically uh, we can't do anything. Well, if you believe that 80% of your uh, value created happens in 20% of your time, then in fact, there's no shortage of time because we only make good use of a, a, a fifth of the time. And therefore, if we concentrated on the things that we're really, really good at doing and didn't have to do all the other stuff, then we would be able to work you know, two or three hours a day and produce more than we had produced in terms of value anyway before. Now, of course, you can't do that if you're a bus driver. You can't do that even if you're an airline pilot because, you know, you just have to fly the machine. It's all the same. But in terms of any creative job or any job where you're in charge of your own time, then it can be done. And that's what, you know, I've always tried to encourage people to do, to do the, the things which are incredibly valuable for, for those people and to forget about the rest because the rest doesn't matter. And you can, I also try to apply it to things like happiness. You know, is it true that there are very few causes of happiness? And it turns out that there are. I mean, for example, of people who say they're very happy, nearly all of them are 
married or in a relationship with, with another person. And uh, that doesn't mean to say that all of them are very happy, but it does mean to say that there's an unusual percentage of people who are happy because they're in a relationship. Um, and if you apply it to jobs, those people who say that they're very happy at work, that they're very satisfied with their work, are usually also the people who say that they're very happy. So if you can just have a successful marriage or relationship and have work which you love, you're almost bound to be happy. Well, you know, those are just two things, two life factors, which, you you know, it's not easy necessarily to arrange a successful relationship or to find a job that you really love. But if you know that you're going to be happy by doing that, then you probably are going to um, arrange it. Uh, or at least place a high priority on arranging it. And so I looked at all kinds of other things in the book uh, which uh, were important or not important. And, um, yeah, so that's uh, that's where we are. Uh, the 80-20 principle, as you know, has sold a hell of a lot of copies. I feel like an ageing rock star because every time I write a book, uh, I don't get the same kind of sales for the book. It's very sad. <laughs> and my my good old... 80-20 principle keeps selling year in and year out. But nevertheless, uh, I do continue to write books because I like it and I think it's important. And some of those books do sell reasonably well. And even if a book only sells 50,000 or 100,000 copies, that's 50,000 people who might be um, happier or more productive as a result of reading Thank, thank you for that uh, amazing intro and I think you've answered probably uh, 15 or 20 questions I had anyway on the 80-20 the rule and, and summing that up but no congratulations for, for all the work you've done I mean you've, you've written and co-authored nearly 25 books and hey at least got to have one book that, that sells millions of copies and um, stands out from the rest so that's absolutely fine a couple of the notes I took from um, what you spoke about with the income and wealth with the 80-20 rule so if you break it down so the 80-20 rule, we know that 20% of the people in the world hold 80% of the wealth, but 20% of those 20% is 4%, and then it goes down to 0.8%, 0.16%, 0.3%, and then finally 0.06%, and on and on and on and goes. So with every bracket, there's 20% uh, richer people than someone else. So if you're a millionaire, that's fine, but someone could be a decamillionaire, then a hundred have a hundred million, then have a billion. Oh, you only got a billion, I've got five billion, then ten billion, oh you only got ten billion, I've got fifty billion, and then a hundred billion and, and so on and so on. So it never ends. Um that was some of the notes I got from that. Then the other one I got too was the eighty twenty rule regarding time. Now, we've got 24 hours in a day, but we sleep for eight hours of those. But even if we use the 80-20 rule for all our time, you would only have nearly five hours or 4.8 hours of productive time. The question is, every single day, what do you do with that 4.8 hours? That's the 20% of your time that's going to move the needle forward. The rest of the stuff is just normal time that we use and don't don't do too much with so focus on the 20 percent of time that matters so yeah they're, they're the notes i got from that but one of the questions i wanted to ask you how did you use the 80 20 rule principle back in the day studying at oxford also to get your mba at wharton business school what did you do differently back in the day studying to use that principle oh well, yes, i forgot to tell that yeah. story yeah that's right when I came across this, I thought I could use this. When I was I was 19 years old, when I was reading this book by Vilfredo Pareto in in the Bodleian Library in Oxford, and I thought, well, it's probably true that uh, in my examinations, uh, the questions that are going to be asked, there'll be some questions that come up more frequently 
In other words, 20% of the questions would be asked 80% of the time. So I, I got the exam papers from the last 20 years and went through them. And it was true. You know, there was always a question in the modern history paper on the French Revolution. There was always a paper, a question about the causes of the First World War. There was usually a question about the Russian Revolution and what the causes of the Russian Revolution were. And, and so what I did was to select, you had to answer three or four questions on each paper. So I selected six subjects according to the frequency that they came up with. So I, I could be pretty sure that three or four questions would arise from these six questions on a, an exam paper that had 60 questions on or something like that. And so I didn't need to study any of the other stuff. So I took a ruthless decision that I wouldn't know about the vast majority of what I was supposed to know, but I'd know a great deal about the stuff that uh, came up very often. And I learnt all sorts of obscure quotes. I even went and studied foreign languages or at least looked at quotes from foreign languages. I made sure that the accents were perfect, even though I didn't understand. I understood what the thing was because I got the translation, but I didn't understand the language at all. So I dropped these into my papers and they gave me a fantastic degree as a result of that. It wasn't intelligence, it was method. Uh, and um, so... I thought, well, if that was useful for that, then it would might, might be quite useful for doing an MBA. And when doing the MBA, I tried to apply this to everything. I tried to look at the 20% of courses that were taken, which got 80% of the votes from students saying that they were very, very interesting courses. So I would only do the courses because you could choose almost all the courses that you did. Um, I'd only choose the courses which people said were great. I would just wouldn't bother with the rest. And I've sort of gone through life a, a bit like that. I've, you know, I've, I've totally ignored the conventional wisdom about how you should be spending your time. And, um, yeah, I mean, it works reasonably well. Yeah, perfect. Thank you for um, expanding on that as well. And, yeah, I just wanted to circle back and, and go through that story because I know it was a good one. Uh, what was your experience like working for Bain Capital and Boston Consulting Group? Can you take us back and uh, give us a bit of a run through of that? Yes, um, it was actually Bain and Company, which was the consulting arm okay. of Bain, and they they later started Bain Capital, which was a very interesting thing to do. I I worked for the Boston Consulting Group uh, initially, and what they did was something called strategy consulting, and this was something that had been invented by Bruce Henderson back in 1964, and he constructed this matrix which. Um, which I still use, which is the gross share matrix or the thing which has got uh, cash cows, dogs, question marks, and stars in it. And what BCG discovered, and this is very, very consistent with the 80-20 principle, is that the businesses which were in the star quadrant, which were businesses which were the leaders in their market, but in high growth markets, were probably about 5% of the total. It stands to reason that you can only have one leader in the market, but you can have loads and loads of people who are number two, number three, number four followers. Um, and it's also true that very few markets are growing consistently in the future anyway at 10% per annum. So 5% of businesses typically were stars. In some companies, they didn't have any. In other companies, they might have 10% of their businesses, which were stars. But it was those businesses that gave, in effect, more than 100% of the profit and cash when we analyzed the real profit from each of the individual products. 
So I thought it's just a wonderful thing to do because again, it could say you, you could you could actually forget about ninety five percent of businesses because they didn't make very much difference. It didn't move the needle to use your your yeah. phrase, Michael. And and so you know what we did, what I've done, and what I've done as an investor is just to concentrate on star businesses. I won't invest in a business unless it's a star business. And if it is a star business, I reckon it's got you know. It doesn't matter what the management's like. You know, I find it very impossible to tell whether people are good managers or not. And most people do as well. They just take the reputation of people and they may have just been very lucky in their particular job. They may be very skillful or whatever, but I couldn't tell the difference. I just said, I want the market position of these businesses. And if I got the market position, I got a star business, then I'm going to invest in it. And it works. It doesn't work 100% of the time, but it does work 90% of the time. And since I've been an investor, you know, I just invest in these star businesses and it's done extremely well. So I encourage people, you might not have any money to invest, but if you don't have money to invest, go and work for one of these companies because it'd be much more fun. It's much more fun working for a high growth company and it's much more fun working for the most profitable or the largest company in a particular area, even if it's only a tiny little area. Um, you'll have more fun. They might give you stock options. You might, you might be able to make some money, some serious money out of that. But uh, you'll have responsibility, which you wouldn't get in a mature company, because in mature companies, everyone's sort of well-ordered. You've got roles which are very well-defined, uh, and uh, everyone knows what they're doing. In a new business, in a high-growth high market, nobody really knows what they're doing, and nobody's got very clear definitions of what, what should be done. And so if you just go and work in one of those companies, and a reasonably intelligent and creative person, and concentrate on the things that you can do which will add the greatest value. You know, you can actually be very successful and your career can go, you know, Zoom uh, because you're in a star business. But if you're not in a star business, uh, it's probably going to be a grind. You're probably going to have to work very hard. You're probably not going to get great bonuses because the company's not very profitable. And, um, yeah, it's not going to be any fun. You could also sum that up with um, instead of, you know, they call startups, take away the T, what do you got? Star. So there's a, a, probably a small correlation between what a startup is and a lot of them don't. And here, here's the fun fact, and you could, you could fill me in on this, but my intuition tells me that majority of startups don't, don't even start. So they call them startups because they haven't really started yet. And when that startup does take off and if it shoots to the moon and misses and hits upon the star, you could drop the T and call it a star business. Would that be correct in that analogy of what a star business is? <laughs> That's pretty clever. Yeah. I like that. Well done. I mean... I was talking about this with my business partner today. You know, we were saying, well, you know, we looked over the history of all my investments and uh, we said that we wanted to invest in star businesses. Some of them didn't turn out to be real stars. They were fake stars. But the businesses that were stars, you know, they, they did have extraordinary rates of return. And how do you find a star business? Because sometimes when a market's starting, the segmentation is not clear. You don't, you know, you don't really know whether it's a separate uh, niche or not, uh, because there might be, you know, barriers which you build later on, but they're not there in the early uh, in the early days. So the best thing to do to give you a clue as to whether it's likely to be a star business is simply to look at the growth rate. And it doesn't matter if the company is very, very, very small if it's growing very, very, very fast. Most people just don't understand compound arithmetic. You know, Albert Einstein was asked, "What's the most 
powerful force in the world. And he says, it's compound interest. Well, yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. When I invested in Betfair, um, a betting exchange business, no one else would invest in that. No, no professional investor anyway would invest in that business because it was being run by a bunch of enthusiasts who were people who liked sport or they liked gambling. But they didn't have anybody who'd ever run a company. They didn't have anyone who'd even worked in a company in any senior role at all. They just invented this, this, this new product. So I, I went and looked at it and I, I, I said to them, well, look, can you show me the sales of the company? And they said, well, no, it's very embarrassing, Richard. They're very small. And I said, well, look, show me the sales. You've been going for six months. Show me the sales when the first month, the second month, third month, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And there I found that they were growing something like 50 or 60% a month. You know, and you thought, well, if that goes on for much longer, it's going to be a huge business. It doesn't have to go on for more than about two or three or four years. So growth is everything. You know, you really you really want to be in a, a business which is growing very fast or you want to invest in a business that's growing very, very fast. And you can find them. And people don't take any notice until they're big and slow. They're not growing very fast. And then they invest in them. That's not very sensible. When did you, when did uh, you invest in uh, Betfair? I know it floated on the New York, uh, sorry, the London Stock Exchange in 2010 for roughly about $1.4 billion at the time. So it was, uh, well, yeah. what was the year you inve- uh, invested in Betfair? I invested six months after the business started. I put £1.5 million in and they gave me 10% of the company for that. So that wasn't the bad Absolutely, thing. absolutely. Now, we could, we could talk all day about investing, but it is not more forte. My forte is books and I want to jump in to unreasonable success and how to achieve it, unlocking the nine secrets of people who have changed the world. So uh, people listening, I want to give them as much value as possible. So let's just start. Let's talk to me about the, the importance of self-belief and your research on this book. How did that come about and what were, the, what were the traits? But we'll start with the importance of self-belief. But if you can give us a bit of a background, how the book sort of came about. Yeah, I was on a train going from Paris to Tours and I didn't have a book to read, which was a new book. So I took an old book. I took Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, uh, which is a, a book about people who are, un, you know, he didn't use the word unreasonably successful, but he said people who were, were stunningly successful. And he had a theory about that, which was that it was all down to the accumulation of experience. So he gave the example of the Beatles, who he said were a mediocre high, high school band, until they went to work in the strip clubs of, um, God, where was it? It was uh, Hamburg. Yeah, Hamburg. And there they had to work seven days a week and they had to work eight hours a day. Uh, they just had to, you know, keep plonking, you know, uh, in order to uh, keep people, you know, really providing background music. So John Lennon said, we, we had to improve, you know, we were bound to improve because we had so much practice. And this led to the theory of the 10,000 hours, that you need to spend 10,000 hours doing something before you become a real expert. And if you become a real expert before other people, then you'll be very, very successful. Well, I thought the theory was all very well as, as far as it went, as far as it went for, they talked about Bill Gates, because Bill Gates, had, was uh, his parents were quite wealthy. He went to a private school and they had computers before anybody else had computers. And so he got an enormous amount of experience of working on computers. So, so yeah, Bill Gates, tick. Beatles, maybe tick, you know. But there were loads of other people that I knew who'd been very successful without spending 10,000 
hours doing anything particular specialist. So I thought to myself, yeah, I mean, uh, Malcolm Gladwell sells far more books than me, so I mustn't criticise him. And in fact, his books are very well written and the stories are fantastic. But it just wasn't convincing. But I said to myself, would it be possible to draw a map of success where you could say the things that you absolutely had to do to be successful? And so my method was very simple. I took 20 people whom, from history or from current um, affairs who I knew or I knew quite a lot about. And they included people like Madonna, and they included uh, Winston Churchill, uh, Bob Dylan was in there, uh, Bismarck, uh, Otto van Bismarck, the Chancellor of Germany for 30 years at the end of the 19th century. was there. All people that I felt I knew extremely well and who were unreasonably successful. And my definition of unreasonably successful was they achieved something which you wouldn't expect from just one person. I mean, Bismarck, for example, kept the peace. Well, first of all, he, he invaded Italy. He got Austria out of Italy. Uh, he then uh, attacked Austria directly and won a little war there. And he attacked France directly and won a little war there. And once he'd done that, he then made Germany one big country, which it wasn't before. It was in, you know, there were loads of principalities and small countries. So Germany was one country. And then he said, okay, now we got Germany together. I want to stop. I want to keep the peace in Europe. For, and that's what he did for the next 27 years. A quite extraordinary success from someone who wasn't a politician. He was a minor aristocrat, so he had a little bit of advantage there. But, you know, you wouldn't, and he was a really strange character. You know, he was very bombastic. He was very, great force of personality, but he pissed everyone off. So, so you know, you wouldn't think that he would end up ruling Germany and effectively Europe for, for 30 years. Anyway, he did. And, and he was very happy. It was a, it was a nice little story. Um, and so I, I taught these 20 people and I said, what traits could they possibly have which could explain why they were so successful? And I made a list of 50 things, and it included things which I didn't include at the end. Like I thought maybe taking big risks was the key, one of the keys to success. And, you know, we all like the idea of people taking big risks and rolling the dice and all the rest of it. Well, of these 20 people, there were only nine of them that actually did take big risks. No, nine out of 20 is quite a lot, but it wasn't 20 out of 20. So I was looking for 19 out of 20 or 20 out of 20 on all these different traits. And so uh, I eventually got the list down to nine things, which they all had, absolutely they all had. And that some of them were a bit obvious, and I'll talk about self-belief, but what? But I'll talk also about one of them which was totally not obvious and um, which came as a big surprise to me, but actually worked extraordinarily well. Anyway, self-belief. You can't succeed in doing something which no one else has done, which my definition, one of the definitions of unreasonable success, unless you really believe that you can do it. You really can't. And if you do believe that you're going to do it, somehow it often happens. It doesn't always happen, but it often happens. And so self-belief is this magic ingredient which disqualifies 99% of people from doing anything really important with their lives because they don't really believe that they've got some magic ability. Steve Jobs you know, it was a very, very weird character. When he was a young man, he um, 
he was not a vegetarian. He was a herbitarian, or I can't remember exactly what it was. But he basically only ate herb type things. And the result of that was that he smelt something dreadful. <laughs> he stank. Um, but, you know, he, he, he was someone who absolutely believed in his star. He really thought that he was the, the bee's knees. He actually went so far with some friends to say that he was one of the enlightened ones, you know, who stalked the earth for centuries. Anyway. Oh. The nutcase in many ways. But nevertheless, he believed that he could do something with computers that nobody, nobody else could do. And, and he actually did it. And there was a famous Apple advert in 1997, which I put at the front of my book, which said the people who are crazy enough to believe that they can change the world other people who do. And, and so, you know, that was pretty much the text for self-belief. So all of these 20 people had quite extraordinary self-belief, but not necessarily at the beginning. So quite interesting was the situation where someone actually didn't start with much self-belief, but acquired it in some way. And Margaret Thatcher, the politician in Britain, was the prime example of this. You know, she basically was a second-rate person in terms of intellect. She got a second class degree. She took an ordinary job as a chemist with her Joe Lyons, the, uh, uh, the company which made various foodstuffs. And she was fairly undistinguished as an as education secretary, basically not, no great shakes. But somehow, and I'll talk about transformation, at one stage in her life, she suddenly got self-belief and that she got it uh, in extremely unpleasant circumstances. Um, so self-belief can develop over time. And so what I did was I classified some people had self-belief right from the beginning, like Bismarck, he had it. Um, Bob Dylan had it when he was 19 years old uh, as a uh, incipient folk singer uh, in, in Manhattan. You know, he had this belief that he would be incredibly successful as a, as a songwriter and as a recording artist. Well, the only problem with that was that the guy couldn't sing. You know, the guy, <laughs> absolutely, he was turned down by all of the folk labels and somehow he managed to get uh, a blue chip label to actually uh, give him a contract. His first album was, was rubbish, but nevertheless, he still absolutely believed in himself. And somehow, if you really believe in yourself, you can find a way of making other people believe. And people take you at your first valuation very often. Of course, you know, if you're a complete idiot, it doesn't work. But, but very often, it's very, very important. But if you don't have self-belief, there are ways of, of developing it. And I I, I discuss those in the book. I mean, one way is to find a mentor who will basically tell you what to do. And one of the things that, that Bob Dylan did was uh, he went to Woody Guthrie, who was a you know famous folk singer, you probably know, you know, and and he was in the, the terminal throes of, of Huntington's disease in a, hosp a public hospital in New Jersey, and Dylan went along and sang all his songs to this guy, <laughs> uh, his songs, the songs that he had written, not, not, not the ones that Dylan had written, but the ones that Woody Guthrie had written. And, uh, and then he, he sort of said, well, I'm, I'm the anointed one of Woody Guthrie. Whether Woody Guthrie in his deathbed was actually took any notice of this and actually realised that Bob Dylan was even there is, not, is, is neither here nor there. But, but somehow 
everyone said, oh, yes, Bob Dylan, he's the new Woody Guthrie. Because he was, firstly, he did something that most folk singers didn't do, which was he presumed to write his own material. Because most folk singers had actually got these, I mean, this whole point about folk songs, they come from the folk. You don't really know who wrote them, you know. Uh, but he wanted to invent new folk songs, which was one thing that Woody Guthrie had done. And the other thing that Woody Guthrie had done was he... Um, got a political angle in it. You know, he was basically quite left-wing or he was in favour of, you know, liber freedom, liberty, and all that sort of very good stuff. Uh, and Dylan sort of adopted the same thing. So he became the voice of the generation. Um, and later on, he decided that he didn't agree with the politics. And, and then he went on and did something else. But there's always this, this huge self-conceit behind it, which is very, very, very important. And so I, I, I sort of try and discuss in the book how you acquire self-belief if you don't have it. And one of the ways of acquiring it is to become an expert in a very, very narrow area, which is a high growth area, not surprisingly. Uh, one of the other things uh, in the book which I'm quite proud of is the idea of a transforming experience. And a transforming experience means that, that there is something that happens to you which really doesn't come from you but comes from the the environment that you're in. So it might be a company or it might be a social movement or it might be um, an event that happens to you. I mean, one of the guys uh, in the book is Viktor Frankl, who was, uh, you know, became a hugely successful psychotherapist and invented the sort of idea of meaning and was probably the first existentialist. Um, and he managed to, to get this experience and his confidence from being in a concentration camp, actually three different concentration camps that he was put in by Adolf Hitler or his minions. Um, and, and to survive in the concentration camp, he basically constructed little bits of paper, you know, backs of, uh, of cigarette packets or whatever, and he wrote down the ideas which he developed in his book. His book was taken from him when he went to the, you know, he hadn't published the book, but the draft of the book was taken from him. And he envisioned himself after leaving a concentration camp, lecturing to people about what, what his theories were. And that is exactly what happened. You know, nine months after he was released from a uh, concentration camp. He was standing up in a working class area of Munich, sort of giving speeches and doing exactly what he had envisaged. He wouldn't have lived, but for having that kind of purpose and it fitted his theory, which was that we all need purpose and, and meaning. So being in a concentration camp for him was a transforming experience. Margaret Thatcher's transforming experience was the Falklands when General Gautieri, the fascist dictator of Argentina, invaded the uh, Molinas, as he called it, or the, the, the uh, Falkland Islands, as the British called it. And uh, everyone said to her, you know, it's hopeless. This is 13,000 miles away from Britain. You can't possibly reclaim these islands. You're going to have to negotiate joint sovereignty or just forget about it because, you know, I mean, how many people lived on the Falkland Islands? I think it was 2,000 people or whatever. Um, and Falkland Islands, frankly, pretty awful place to be. <laughs> I mean, it's never, it's, it's think of it as, as being Tasmania, but about 10 degrees colder the whole of the year. <laughs> it's, a, it's not a place that you really want to be. It's not a place of any economic value. So Mrs. Thatcher, forget about it. But no, she said, no. No, I'm not going to have part of Britain invaded uh, uh, by some tin pot dictator. Uh, we're going to send a task force to 30,000 miles away to reclaim it. 
and everyone said she didn't stand a chance. Um, there was uh, Alexander Haig, who was the Secretary of State for Ronald Reagan, and he said, you know, the chances of recovering the islands are nil, and I've got all the research to, to prove it. And Mrs Thatcher then had to try and get Ronald Reagan to contradict his uh, Secretary of State and also to contradict the UN Secretary, uh, uh, whose name uh, escapes me at the moment, Joanne Summer. Anyway, she said she took Argentina's side, but somehow Mrs Thatcher then managed to persuade Ronald Reagan, because they were good mates and they were ideologically very similar, you know, to, to actually provide real assistance for Britain. And they provided landing, you know, uh, intermediate places where they could refuel the uh, helicopters, which were going to help uh, the landing of, of the troops. Yeah, I think the old saying holds and, true, give someone an inch and they'll take a mile. So if you, if you give another country an inch of your territory and take over, well, what's to stop them from going to the next one? Yeah, I mean you can you can you can see it going on in in Russia and the Ukraine at the moment. Yeah. It would be a, it would be a disaster if uh, Ukraine's take, taken over by by Russia. Well, that's very likely to happen. Uh, it will be a terrible war and it will go on for a very long time. A lot of people will be killed and arrested. But I mean, Mrs. Thatcher made a point that we are not going to cede territory, and uh, the result of it was that um, Gutierrez's regime actually fell as a result of her. Unbelievable bravery, Mrs. Thatcher's unbelievable bravery. Now, as a result of that, she then came to believe that she could save Britain from socialism. And I don't know if you, uh, you know, you probably weren't around in the 1970s, but I was. It was a terrible place in Britain at that time uh, because, you know, uh, you had 30% inflation every year because the different trade union bosses were saying, we want 30% increase. So the other one said, well, we've got to have a 30% increase. And the result of that was that the people who had fixed incomes, people with savings, you know, were pretty much wiped out as a result. Um, and, you know, somehow it, it had to be, it had to end. And um, the, the dead weren't buried, you know, the, the ambulance people went on strike. You know, it was dreadful. And and then there was this kind of backlash which said, all right, we'll, we'll get rid of the Labour Party. We'll, we'll put Mrs Thatcher into power. But during her first three years, it was a complete and utter disaster. You know, in, inflation went zooming up to about 14%. Unemployment, which she said, you know, Labour isn't working, we'll solve the unemployment problem. Well, unemployment <laughs> trebled. Uh, she'd restricted the money supply, so about 3,000 businesses went bankrupt every week. I mean, <laughs> it was a complete utter disaster. But because of the stance which she took on the Falkland Islands, the following year she was re-elected with a large majority. And that purely a matter of utter chance, but a transforming experience as far as she was concerned. Yeah. So I would say to people, Michael, if you if you actually... Uh, haven't had a transforming experience and you want to be unreasonably successful, you better work out how to get a transforming experience. All of the people in the book didn't plan their transforming experiences, but we can. Uh, and the idea is you go into uh, an experience as one person and you come out as a completely different person who's 10 times or maybe infinitely more effective than you were. And it's because usually because you're working in a very... Um, stressful but important job 
And sometimes it's just working for a very high growth company, which is uh, something that you can do. Well, even, be, even before that, so I know we're going to run out of time, but I just want to get one point through. I mean, you've done 25 books. So for people listening right now, go out, research uh, Richard Kosh. Just Google his name, honestly, and you'll see all the books that come up. You've done decades upon decades of, uh, of research as well. And research makes you a knowledgeable person. And with that knowledge, you put it into a book. And that's, that's what we do as researchers first. But what I want you to touch on is, Anyone can do this, absolute anyone, and here's what they can do. Having high expectations and their Olympian yep. effect. So can you just talk on why is it so important to have very, very high expectations and, and how that works with sort of the Olympian effect as well? Yeah, high expectations are the key to everything according to Jeff Bezos, and he, and he should know. The idea is if you ask people to do something totally unreasonable, uh, and you're uh, very firm about it, and you insist that everybody has to have high expectations, then those people will do magic things. I and mean, this was part of Steve Jobs' um, experience as well. He demanded completely unreasonable things of the software writers. Uh, and he, because he was so insistent they had to do it, they sort of did it. You know, And because you know one person did it, the other people had, had, had to do it. And it's contagious. You know, you, you basically, you can't have a low uh, expectation person on a high expectation team. Either they have to fit in with the high expectations or they'll destroy the whole team. And so, you know, if you, if you actually have very high expectations of yourself and other people, they will do things that they don't think that they can do. So being unreasonably ambitious and setting targets which people think are, are absolutely ridiculous can work. I mean, let me give you an example. It's not in the book, but let me give you an example from my own experience in starting, um, being one of the people starting LEK, the consulting firm. When I was in Boston Consulting Group, we grew at about 20% a year, which is great. You know, 20% every year for, you know, 10 years. Um, when I was in Bain & Company, they grew at 40% a year, you know, which was extraordinary. And a very, very good reason. We haven't got time to go into We've only got three minutes left. Gosh, uh, the, we haven't got time to go into that. But the reason that they uh, were successful is they had, well, one reason was that they had this very high expectation. And they did grow at 40% a year. Can you imagine 40% a year? It means that, that, you know, you had to hire four people for every 10 people that you had in the company. Because in consulting, you're selling time, so you're selling bodies. So, you know, you have to, it's not, it's not a trivial job to recruit that number of people and integrate them into the team and teach them and all the rest of it. But Bain & Company did it. They did it. They grew at 40% a year. They grew at 40% a year for about 20 years. When we started LEK, I said, why don't we grow at 100% a year? And my partner said, yeah, that's silly. Don't, you know, don't, don't, don't do it. I said, look, let's do it. Let's try and do it. Um, and uh, they st eventually they, I, I persuaded them to do it. So what we actually had to do was to hire every year. We had to hire people who were the same number of people that we had already in the firm. So we did that, and we got some fantastic people into the company, and we gave them all a personal computer, which we thought was really very cool because no one, no one had personal computers in those days, certainly not the very junior people. Um, and then we said, well, what are we going to do with these people? And 
We couldn't take them to clients because they were wet behind the ears. Okay, so we couldn't take them to clients. We couldn't do that. But what we could do was to give them analysis and train them analysis. We knew how to do analysis. So we had to start selling analysis. So what analysis would we sell which would be very valuable? Well, we'd start selling competitive analysis. And that led us to then say to people, well, if you're in the M&A business and you're trying to acquire a company, we can find out everything that you want to know. This is before all the data sources you have on the internet, before the internet. You know, we will do that and we will, you know, basically that's what we could get these people to do. And no one was offering that service. And we were able to charge very high prices for it. We were able to work these poor people to death. you know, so we'd hired all these people, but we had loads and loads of work. So they were working 80 hours a week and doing all-nighters and all that sort of stuff. Um, and we were reaping the profits from that because we were charging them out on an hourly basis. And they had a bit of fun and they learned an awful lot. And we did increase their salaries rather reluctantly. Uh, but anyway, that worked because we said, and for every year that I was at LEK, for the first six years, we grew our revenue, we grew our numbers of people employed, and we grew our profits by 100% a year. We doubled them. So, you know, if you, if you set an unreasonable target, then you have to do something different and creative and therefore probably quite competitive because no one else will be doing it in order to realize that. And there's something about human beings which is really, uh, at least motivated human beings, which is really odd, which is that they will respond to completely ridiculous challenges. And that, yeah, yeah, and that, 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 that sums it up. So I think we got through uh, a couple of the nine uh, key principles through there. But yeah, anyone, honestly, go out, purchase his book, Unreasonable Success. It's Richard's uh, probably almanac of always understanding and research. Uh, now, before, there he is. Uh, so you can find it anywhere that they sell books, uh, of course, bookshops and online. Do you have another book in you, Richard? Are you working on something else? Uh, can we look forward to something else coming out in the future? Well, it's funny you should say that, Michael. I'm trying to write a book called The 8020 Soul, S-O-U-L. It's not a religious book or anything like that. But what it is, is addressing this question about what's important in life, things like meaning, purpose, and happiness. So, I mean, I have a theory that if you want to do something do some good in the world, you've got to be happy. Because if you're not happy, you won't make other people happy. In fact, you'll make other people miserable. So happiness is terribly important in terms of doing good. And it's just one of the themes of the book. And I just started writing that. Keep, Whether it will ever see no, the light do today, it, do I it, don't know. People don't understand. You've actually done living the 80-20 way as well. So work less, worry less, mm. uh, succeed more and enjoy more. And I've done a summary on that too. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I'd love to see the 80-20 uh, book series as a chicken soup for the soul series. So keep doing what you're doing. But I'll let you go. Thank you for uh, thank you for your time from audience. Just Google his name. Check it out. There's so much information. You'll spend years and years on not only uh, understanding the knowledge, but applying the knowledge too so thank you for all your hard work and dedication for for all the work you've done over the decades so richard thank you for being on the best book podcast and enjoy the rest of your day okay I have a good day and I hope you manage to stay awake for the rest of the day having got up five that's my that's my thanks a lot thanks richard all right speak to you soon